This is a Scream Queen production. Jen Carpenter. Happy True Crime Tuesday and happy spring break. If you remember, which I'm sure a lot of you don't, I cannot remember shit these days myself. I laid out the schedule for this season in the very first episode. So new episodes every other week from February to November, mini episodes during the off weeks, and then a spring break during the month of May and a summer break in August, which means... This is our last episode until we come back in June, so let's get into it. While it will circle back to Michigan, as they always do, our story begins in Mebane, North Carolina, a small town near the North Carolina-Virginia border. Half the town is on the National Registry of Historical Places, there's a quaint little historic shopping district, coined by who I'm not sure, but it's what it says on the website, the best place to live in North Carolina. The average home price is a little over $300,000, so they're a little bit fancy there. Or, I mean, a $300,000 home where I live is pretty fancy, but I don't know. I don't know if that's the case for them. Anywho, September 25th, 1998 was a Friday. Daily temperatures averaged around 80 degrees in Mebane in late September, and judging by the fact that landscaping crews were out mowing that day, it's a safe bet that it wasn't storming. So it was likely a sunny, hot afternoon when a landscaping crew set out to tame a vacant field just off I-85, the main thoroughfare between Raleigh, Durham, and Charlotte. As cars zipped by, a crew member manning a tractor spotted something bright white tangled in the brush beneath a billboard. Now, it could have been anything, but since this is a true crime podcast, I'm sure you know where this is going. What caught the landscaper's eye was a sun-bleached human skull, but what he found when he took a closer look was the fully intact, partially closed skeleton of what appeared to be a small child. Based on the shortcut in style of the dark black hair and the clothing the little body was wearing, black and white sneakers, khaki shorts with a $50 bill stuffed deep into one pocket, white tube socks, little underoos, it was quickly determined that the body was probably that of a little boy between 10 and 11 years old. It was evident that the body had been placed where it was found due to the way it was laid out, so homicide was immediately suspected. The body was so decomposed that cause and time of death were difficult to determine, but authorities' best guess was that the boy had been killed elsewhere, then placed beneath the billboard not more than a few months before it was discovered. It's really kind of incredible the science they used to reach that determination. They pulled weather reports, they looked at insect activity around the body, and they used isotopic testing to determine 
where the boy had been geographically the last few years of his life. With this, not only were they able to determine roughly when he'd been placed under the billboard, but they were also able to determine that he'd been in North Carolina for no more than 90 days before he was killed. There was so little tissue left that they couldn't take fingerprints or even determine gender through a visual examination. There were no signs of bullet or knife wounds to the bone, but there were some broken and missing bones around the neck and throat, which led authorities to believe that the boy had likely been strangled. He was initially identified as a caucasoid, which is apparently someone of either Caucasian or Latino descent due to his bone structure and hair color. There were no local reports of missing children that fit the little boy's description, and there were no matches in the national database. Local news outlets ran reports on the story, but no leads were generated there either, and the case eventually went cold. In 2000, two years after the boy under the billboard was found, the first visual reconstruction was completed by the Smithsonian and the FBI. Hand-drawn photos of what the boy might have looked like were circulated by media outlets, but this did not result in a single lead, nor did the many reconstructions done over the years. Some computerized, some hand-drawn, even a really, really creepy-looking clay bust. The boy's DNA profile was placed in CODIS, which is the Combined DNA Index System, and authorities waited for a match. That, or the possibility of someone coming forward looking for their lost child that fit the boy's description, were really the only ways that this case was going to be solved at this point. But Tim Horn, captain of the Criminal Investigation Unit with the Orange County, North Carolina Sheriff's Department, refused to allow the case to be forgotten. He kept the case file box under his desk, right in his way, so that every time he turned in his chair, he bumped the box with his leg. And every time he bumped the box, he thought of the boy under the billboard. In one 2017 news report, he said, I've never let it go. That might sound cliche, but it's not like this thing was on a shelf, forgotten, and we just came back to it. This has always been in the forefront of my mind. I worked the case the day it happened. I've been here continuously since that time. I've never forgotten it, so anytime there is an analysis, new testing, new capabilities, we're exploring it, trying to make that match. Which is how the case came to the attention of world-famous genealogist Barbara Ray Ventner. Ventner is best known for her work helping police solve such cases as the Golden State Killer and the Bear Brook Murders. And she did this through what is arguably the biggest advancement in forensic science since DNA testing itself. Ancestral DNA research. I'm sure we're all familiar by now because it is solving so many cold cases. But basically, ancestral DNA is when Cousin Susie gets a 23andMe kit for Christmas, gets her results back, and then uploads those results to a public database like GEDmatch. And then investigators like Barbara Ray Ventner can compare those profiles searching for matches. In October of 2018, Ventner was able to determine that the little boy was half Asian, half white, not a Caucasoid. And a few months later, she identified a close relative who had uploaded their DNA profile to GEDmatch. 
Investigators reached out to that relative, and by the end of their conversation with the never-publicly-identified family member, I'm not sure who was more shocked, the family member or investigators. But after 20 years of searching relentlessly, the boy under the billboard finally had a name. Robert Adam Witt, or Bobby, as his family called him. Bobby Witt was born on January 7, 1988, at Wirtsmith Air Force Base in Oscoda, Michigan, a small up-north town between Lake Huron and the Huron-Manistee National Forest. If you're using your hand as a map of Michigan, it's kind of where, like, the knuckle on your index finger is. It's also where teenagers Patty Spencer and Pam Hobley disappeared without a trace together on Halloween night, 1969. We've even talked about Wirtsmith Air Force Base in particular before, as Columbine shooter Eric Harris and his family lived there for a few years. In fact, Bobby Witt was born in 1988, and the Harris family transferred to Wirtsmith in 1989. So it's likely that the two families' time there actually overlapped, probably, even if just by a little bit. Bobby's parents were airman John Russell Witt, who was 25 when his first and only child was born, and South Korean immigrant Myung Ha Cho, who was 10 years her husband's senior. The two met while John was stationed in South Korea. They fell in love, got married, and when John was sent back to the States, Myung went with him. Soon after Bobby's birth, John was discharged from the Air Force, whether honorably or dishonorably or medically or whether his contract was just up, I really have no idea, but he left the military and the family of three moved to Sardinia, Ohio, where the rest of John's family lived. They actually lived just a couple streets down from John's sister Barbara and her family, and Bobby grew up very close with his cousins who were all girls several years older than him. So they treated Bobby like the little brother that they always wanted and never got. Bobby's parents adored him. Myung was a hard worker who often worked two jobs to support her family. John doted on his son. Bobby was described as his sidekick. Bobby had an air hockey table in his bedroom. He loved video games. He loved dinosaurs. Jurassic Park was his favorite movie. He was smart, he had a dry sense of humor, but he was really funny. And, you know, like many only children, he was kind of mature for his age. Everyone he interacted with was a little bit older. In 1996, Bobby and his parents moved to Concord, North Carolina for work. The last time they visited their family in Ohio was in the spring of 1998. In the two years since they'd moved away, it was obvious that a lot had changed. John was seeing another woman, which Myung was painfully aware of. They fought a lot about John's affair, obviously, and Myung's drinking, which was probably brought on by John's fucking affair. Myung threatened to divorce John and move back to South Korea with Bobby. In July of 1998, John told his family that he'd put Myung and Bobby on a plane to South Korea that she was going to raise Bobby back home, and he just let them go. And his family didn't really have a reason not to believe him. This was 1998. There was no social media. The internet was not the see-all, know-all monster that it is today. Bobby was gone, and his cousins, aunts, grandparents, they didn't have a way to get in contact with him or make sure he was okay. 
But that didn't stop them from trying. Once social media was a thing, Bobby's cousins scoured MySpace and then Facebook and then Twitter and then Instagram and then Snapchat for any sign of their beloved cousin. They thought it was odd that they couldn't find him, but they figured maybe his family in South Korea had like turned him against them and he didn't want anything to do with them. So he had blocked them all or he wasn't using his real name on his account so that they couldn't find him. Or they thought, you know, maybe he's just one of those rare humans that boycotted all forms of social media. They even hired a private investigator in two law firms to search for Bobby with no results. Meanwhile, John didn't do much with his new lease on life after he'd freed himself from the shackles of being a husband and a father by sending his family halfway across the world. In 1999, a year after his family left him, he was sentenced to 44 years in federal prison after pleading guilty to six counts of bank robbery and two counts of using a handgun during a crime of violence. From military man to family man to bank robber, but the worst was yet to come. Because if Bobby never went to South Korea, if he'd actually been dead the whole time, where was Myung? Before we get into that, I would like to thank today's sponsor. Every Plate is America's best value meal kit. While most meal kits come with a premium price tag, Every Plate offers delicious dinners that won't break the bank. Choose between 17 recipes that change every week and swap out proteins, veggies, and sides to your liking. Our most recent box had this French onion chicken dish that was so good. Zero leftovers. And that's another thing. Every plate's quality ingredients come carefully packaged and pre-portioned, helping you save money and reduce waste, like that bag of mixed greens that you throw out every week. As a result, every plate is 25% cheaper than grocery shopping, making it the easiest and most responsible way to eat affordably. And right now you can try every plate for just $1.79 per meal by going to everyplate.com and entering code SODEAD179. Again, that's everyplate.com, promo code SODEAD179 for $1.79 per meal. And be sure to tell them I sent you. All right, now to find Myung Ha Cho. Because investigators got Bobby's ethnicity wrong initially and labeled him as a Caucasoid instead of an Asian American, authorities had no cause to link the discovery of his body along I-85 in North Carolina to the discovery of another body found carelessly discarded along I-85 four months earlier and 200 miles away in Spartanburg County, South Carolina. The Jane Doe was determined to be an Asian woman between the ages of 30 and 45 years old. She was nude with ligature marks on her wrists, and she had been strangled to death. But that was all authorities knew, because no one ever reported Myung or Bobby missing. Because they all believed John's story that they just left the country to start a new life. But when Tim Horn, the investigator who'd kept Bobby's file at his feet for all those years— never forgetting him, started searching for Myung once Bobby was identified, he quickly found the Jane Doe case from the same highway, same time frame, just over the state line. DNA testing confirmed what authorities were certain of, South Carolina's Jane Doe and North Carolina's Boy Under the Billboard were mother and son, Myung Ha Cho and Bobby Witt. 
The two seemingly fell off the face of the earth in 1998 when they were 44 years old and 10 years old, respectively, and their fate was not discovered until 20 years later when they would have been, should have been, 64 years old and 30 years old. I just cannot imagine what that family went through. For 20 years, they just thought that Myung and Bobby were off living a new life and they had been dead the entire time. If they'd reported them missing, checked with Carolina authorities, it could have saved them decades of grief. But who would think? I mean, by all accounts, until he went to prison for being a serial bank robber, John was a good guy and a good dad. Bobby, like I said, was his little sidekick, his best friend. They spent all their time together. They were super close. Why would anyone ever think or suspect that he had killed his son and his wife? And then, you know, the family also has to come to terms with the fact that not only have Myung and Bobby been dead for 20 years, but their own relative, their son, brother, uncle, he's the one that killed them. I just, like, my heart goes out to them because what a horrible, horrible situation. The good news, if there can possibly be good news in a situation like this, was that police didn't have to go far to find their killer. They knew John Witt was their guy, and they knew exactly where he was— at Ashland Correctional Institution in Kentucky, where he was expected to remain until November 22, 2037. When investigators told him they'd identified the bodies, he confessed immediately. And like, this asshole was 36 when he was arrested for bank robbery in 1999. He was sentenced to 44 years in prison. So he wasn't getting out until he was, what, 74, 75? His life was already over. Why wouldn't he just confess then? Put his family, who were missing Bobby and Myung that whole time, out of their misery. John was carted back to North Carolina, where he was charged with two counts each of second-degree murder and concealing a death for killing his wife and son. On January 15, 2020, John Russell Witt pleaded guilty to all charges. He told authorities that he killed Myung to get her out of the way so that he could be with his mistress. He tied her up and strangled her in their home, then wrapped her body in a blanket and drove across state line to South Carolina, where he dumped her on the side of the highway like a bag of trash. Once Myung was gone, John moved his mistress into his house, but she didn't get along with Bobby, who was probably fucking struggling because his mom just up and disappeared. So John decided to get rid of Bobby, too. Sometime in late July of 1998, so about two and a half months after he'd killed Myung, John took his 10-year-old son for a drive. He told Bobby to get into the back seat so they could play a game and to lie down with his eyes closed. He then climbed into the back seat, got on top of Bobby, and suffocated him with a towel. To John's mistress's credit, she had no idea what John had done. When Myung conveniently disappeared, he told her that Myung had gone back to South Korea. And then when Bobby disappeared a couple months later, he told her that he'd put him on a plane to go be with his mother. So she was a piece of shit, to be sure, having an affair with a man she knew was married, but she was not an accessory to murder. So I guess that's something. John Witt was sentenced to 26 to 32 years for each murder— His sentences are to be served consecutively, not concurrently, but consecutively, after his 2037 sentence for bank robbery expires. So let's math this real quick. 
In 2037, he'll be 74 or 75. 64 years after that, he'll be maggots. Maggots, Michael. John insisted that he's tortured by his violent actions, which he blamed on lust, and that he even attempted suicide in 2001 because of it. At his sentencing hearing in 2020, he told the judge, The terrible things that I did do are in complete contrast to how I feel about little Bobby and dear Myung Ha, whom I loved and miss beyond words. So, I mean, silver lining, it sounds like the guy's been tormenting himself for the past 20 years over killing his family and that he will continue to do so. That's good, right? Young and Bobby's remains were cremated, then returned to Bobby's family in Ohio. A long-delayed funeral was held for the two on May 18, 2019, and their remains were buried side-by-side at Mount Oreb Cemetery, finally reunited after two decades apart. Of the atrocities her brother committed, Barbara Mullman told the Washington Post, Not in a million years would I have ever imagined that my brother would be capable of doing this disgusting, vile, heinous act. Not in a million years would I have imagined him to be a monster hidden in plain sight. Investigator Tim Horn, who never gave up on Bobby's case, who kept that box under his desk, bumping his leg on it every day so that he never forgot, who fought to get this case in front of the best investigators and scientists and genealogists, who worked to discover what happened to Bobby's missing mother. He retired on February 1st, 2019, just days after John Russell Witt confessed to the murders. He'd found Bobby's identity, and he'd found his killer. His work was done. And that is the story of the boy under the billboard, born in Oscoda, Michigan, and murdered by his monster of a father 10 years later. Thank you for coming to my dead talk. My main sources for today's episode were a Washington Post article by Kyle Swenson and a Times News article by Kate Croxton. For a full list of today's resources, you can check out the page for this episode on the SoDead website. And now, how about a little liquid cheese? I keep thinking that I'm going to run out of things that border on morbid and true crimey to talk about, But then new shit just keeps on happening. So today I'm going to tell you about the very latest time that I almost died, which was last week. Uh, I am still nursing so many bruises and aches and pains, so it is fresh. Fresh. And I feel like, if I'm remembering correctly, that the first time I told you about a time I almost died was my experience uh, trying edibles for the first time on my 40th birthday, which is ironic because it is almost my birthday again. It's birthday. I hate the term birthday week. I hate that. I hate, I hate that. Um, but as I'm recording this, my birthday is a couple days away. And by the time you hear it, my birthday will be a couple days past. So kind of birthday week, I guess. Gross. But yeah, so it's just kind of ironic timing. I guess I die every year around my birthday almost. Eh. So you really only have to take a quick glance at my skin tone to know that I don't get out very often. I am paler than Casper's ghost. But I want to. We have this huge yard. We've got a deck. We've got actually a really nice sunroom off of the back of the house before the deck. 
and we just really don't use a lot of our outside space. So I have long wanted to get a fire table for our deck. This is not going to go where you think it's going to go. So just, yeah, it's fine. So yeah, I recently bought, I bought it at Target, one of those, a fire table and four chairs. And last week, Tuesday, my day off, Tuesday is my Sunday, right? Because my shop is open from Wednesday to Sunday. So then Monday and Tuesday are my weekend. So Tuesday, it was nice out. Imagine that. I've yet to experience very many nice days yet in 2022, but it was nice out this day. And so I went outside. I took about half an hour figuring out how to turn the fire table on, but I got it turned on. I sat down in one of my new chairs uh, and I called my grandma to tell her happy birthday because I'm a good granddaughter sometimes. And as I was talking to her, the chair started to like wobble. So at first I was like, okay, like I, you know, the chair's like one of the legs is on like a rock or something, making it uneven. But then the chair started to go down a little more. So then I was like, oh shit, did this thing have like a faulty leg and the leg is folding under? So I tried to kind of yank the chair back to even it out so I could get up out of it. And it was stuck and just started going down real fast, throwing me towards not only the ground, but also directly towards the fire table. So I hit the deck, pun intended. I mean, I guess it's not a pun. That's literally what I did. And I should mention that our deck, the way that our backyard is, our deck is like easily six feet up off the ground and underneath it is a bunch of huge rocks and stuff like that. I think that it used to be the deck for like an outdoor swimming pool. So it's very high up. So it's not, you know, ground adjacent or even near the ground at all. So I hit the deck. Um, I'm like kind of stuck between the chair and this fire table, which it's a little bit windy this day. So the flames are not being calm. They're kind of like every now and then a flame is like lashing out from the table. And it's then that I realize I try to move the chair again so that I can back away from the fucking table of flames. And I realize what has happened. Um, Our deck is very old. Our house is a hundred years old. The deck is probably from the eighties or nineties. And there's this one section where the wood had started to rot on a certain board. Why why my husband chose to put the fire table and chairs directly over that spot that had rotted, I'm not real sure. Um, I'm not going to call it attempted murder, but like keep a mental note for me. (laughs) But anyway, one of the legs of the chair had gone through all the way this rotting part in the deck that was now completely rotted, that was now a hole in the deck. So my chair is stuck. I am stuck. I can't move the chair. I can't move the table. I'm trapped between the two. There's fire coming at my face from the table. And at the same time, I feel a little bit like I'm on thin ice. Like, okay, there's this one hole, but what if the whole thing is about to go then I'm dropping six feet to the ground and this fire table is going to land on top of me. So it was, it was pretty scary there for a second. Um, luckily, when I fell, I was, and I'm on the phone with my grandma, 
by the way, this whole time. And I don't want her to freak out and know that something's wrong. So I'm just talking to her about her plans for the weekend as I'm almost dying. And so I managed to text my son to come downstairs. It took a few seconds, but he figured out how to turn the fire table off. So at least I wasn't going to catch on fire. And then he slid the table out a little bit. I was able to move enough. He pulled the chair out. I was free. The deck didn't collapse any further. But oh my God. You know, at first I was like, okay, I survived. It's fine. You didn't catch on fire. You didn't fall to your death. You're fine. I have so many bruises. I have so many bruises. At first I thought like that I had cracked or bruised some ribs because for a couple days I was having a hard time like taking a deep breath. Um, Then it was mainly my right leg. I've got this bruise that takes up almost the entirety of my thigh. Now we're like a week plus later, right? It happened on the 12th and today's the 21st. So yeah, week and a half later. And my biggest problem is my knee. I feel like there's like a little piece of bone floating around in there, stabbing my muscles and nerves and whatnot. I don't know. Will I go to the doctor for it? Time will tell. Probably not. But yeah. So that is the most recent time I almost died by simultaneously catching on fire and dropping six feet to my death. And maybe possibly it was attempted murder on my husband's part. I'm kidding. I'm I'm kidding. But yeah, so that happened. And hopefully um, I'll go at least another whole year without a near-death experience. Do any of you have fire tables? Because I'm a little bit afraid to turn that thing back on again. Like, I don't I, I don't know if I'll ever be able to relax around a table that almost melted my face off. I don't know. Okay, so as stated at the beginning of this episode, it is now time for my spring break, which it's not going to be a break for me at all, but it's one less thing on my plate for a couple weeks so that I can refresh a bit, not sitting at my fire table. Um, and that'll be kind of nice. Not not nice for you, but a little nice for me. But new episodes of So Dead will return on June 14th, which is not as far away as it sounds. I promise. And we will be talking about where one might find a new set of peepers. Between now and then, there is always the Facebook group, the So Dead Podcast discussion group, which is a lot of fun. And of course, TikTok. You can find me under Scream Queen 517 And... Patrons will still get bonus episodes in April here soon and in May, so there is a little bit of new content for patrons. Couple of events coming up at Deadtime Stories this month and next month. April 30th is Independent Bookstore Day, so come down to Lansing's Bookshop Row on Washington Avenue, where there are five of us within less than a mile of one another. At Deadtime Stories, we'll have some exclusive merch, some throwback goodies, think like Reading Rainbow and Book It, stuff like that. We'll have free kids' books, sales, oh, and kittens. Local Rescue Saved by Zaid is bringing their kitten truck and will be facilitating kitten snuggles and adoptions. The very next Saturday, May 7th, is going to be a grand old time in Rio Town. Our friend and neighbor, Vintage Junkies, does an artisan market every year the Saturday before Mother's Day. So there will be local artists and vendors lining the streets. And then most, if not all, of the shops are doing sidewalk sales of their own that day too, um, deadtime stories included. So sales, new stuff, artisan market, 
clearance sales, mix it all together, it's going to be a lot of fun. Like I said, (laughs) there's nothing breakish about this break for me. And I'll see you sooner than you think. Until then, though, keep shining, you magnificent what the fucks. 